Hey there, podcast fans. Andrew Bray, son of your favorite podcast host, Barbara Bray. Hello there, mom. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. <laughs> I just love these times. It's I just so love good. the smile on your face. I, I mean, again, the thing that folks don't get to see, unfortunately, is your giant smile. <laughs> so I just, uh, uh, an immediate plug, just go to barbarabray.net and just listen to everything this woman has done. But also there's pictures of her giant, inspiring smile. <laughs> Andrew. Anyway, how, are you, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's so nice. We don't live close. So the audience doesn't know that. We don't, But we also get this time together. It's real special. I just love seeing your smile too. You have a beautiful smile. So it's great. Well, thank you. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about this amazing person that you are going to share with us t- very soon? Well, Andrew, you know her now. We, mm-hmm. You met Hedrick Nichols. I adore her. I feel like I've known her forever. She's like a soul sister. <laughs> and when you met her, we were in Kentucky together and Andrew joined us. And it was like we were playing the whole time. <laughs> Am I right? Oh, yeah. She's definitely your fourth sister. (laughs) She's amazing. And I just, um, I've already done a reflection with her. We did something around anti-racism. So I'm going to link that on our site. But we need to get her story. When I, you know, when we were at this conference in Kentucky, Hedrick was the keynote and she is so beautiful and a singer and everything. I just... I, I just feel like her story is so wonderful, and she's an author, a speaker, a teacher. And uh, every time I see her tweet me, and <laughs> I just have a big smile on my face. So I, I just love the, I just love talking with her. So I, th- I know my audience lo- will love her also. I'm so glad. Well, everybody, no more waiting. Stay tuned and listen to Barbara Bray and Hedrick Nichols. Well, this is going to be one of those podcasts that you're going to want to listen to over and over. I'm with, I call her my soul sister. (laughs) I mean, I just, I really, really love Hedrick. Hedrick, I'm so happy you're here with me. Oh, Barbara, thank you. I mean, we decided we we were sisters back in summer. And so, yes, I am absolutely elated to be on this podcast. (laughs) Well, we've done a reflection before, but when we started talking, we we got together. We got together in Kentucky, which was really fun in August. And I mean, it was every moment I just felt like I had to pinch myself. I said, I'm here with Hedrick. I'm here with Hedrick. It was so great, especially after the pandemic and everything, you know, you coming together and meeting live, one of my, touching and hugging one of my favorite people that was just, yeah. (laughs) It, it was so fun. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about what we did when we were there, at, but I want to introduce you to my audience if they don't know you. If you don't know her, you better know her because Hedrick Nichols is amazing. So Hedrick is a curriculum designer and middle years program district ed tech lead from North Texas. And um, you just got that job. That's right. Not just the actually leveled up from that job. I need to go ahead and change that in. I am now the pre-K-12 ed tech curriculum and instructional specialist. <gasps> oh, look, I can finally say it in one breath. <laughs> I I should have changed it. I I'm so glad. It. I should have, as soon as you said it, I said, oh, yeah, right. I guess I forgot. I got to 
gotta change that. Yeah, but it's that new. It is that new. Wow. Well, I'm glad you said something. Okay, so what I gotta go on, because you're an author of I don't know how many books. Oh my gosh, I got I got what is it, six books out? Oh my goodness. Yeah, we were there in uh, Kentucky signing books at the same yeah. time. It was so fun. I, in fact, we'll put pictures up of us signing together. Oh, yeah. That yeah, was so we got to do that. And you also are an equity consultant because yeah, I know you help a lot of teachers and districts and you say you amplify the voices of all students. I think you also amplify the voices of all of us because I'm learning from you. Oh. All about equity. I mean, I just read your book again, the What is the Anti-Racism? And I was thinking, I got to get those for the school, the local school. I just got to buy some and we're going to talk about it and get it out there because it just makes it sense the way you wrote it. I try to. You know, it's a, when you hear those words, especially now when we've got eight states that have already passed legislation uh, about um, CRT, which actually has nothing to do with talking about race, but a lot of people think it does. I know. Um, it's, it's really important to strike a tone so that people who might not be familiar or might not be fans or worse, who, so that they can understand. So there's palatable for a lot of people. I really think we need to do that if they understand what, what does it mean to be anti-racist or to understand really, I mean, how it got kind of turned around with CRT? It'd be nice if you could, we can get that word out. But you also do some other things. You have a YouTube series and a podcast called Small Bites. And uh, I just love it. You do know that you were very instrumental in, actually, you chose the title pretty much. I said something on a tweet once and it was, how do you eat an equity elephant? And you said, oh, I really like that. And from there, I decided, you know what I do too? I'm thinking what I call it, Small Bites. So, you know, I don't think I've ever shared that with you, but yes, I owe the title to you. Oh my gosh. I'm, I feel so lucky. Well, yeah. I think I know when we did it because we did that reflection and we were talking about that then. Oh my gosh, that's a long time ago. Oh, wow. Now you see everyone why I want Hedrick on my show. I just, every time we talk, there's something that you bring up that I go, oh my gosh, yes. Oh, that's right. Oh no. <laughs> we, we've got, we, yeah, it's been a minute now. We've known each other for a minute and, and that relationship's just grown. So that's what's so neat, you know? Uh, it, it, is, it is fun. It is really fun. So why don't you do, I mean, one thing you did is a keynote at the Deeper Learning Symposium in Kentucky and Louisville. You told your story. Can you kind of do an overview? I know you can't do the same thing because of the time, but just a short overview of what you kind of shared. It was just beautiful. Well, you know, what I tell people, the elevator pitch version is that I know all of the TikTok dances because I'm that young. And I also know firsthand stories that my grandmother told, that she, my great-grandmother told that she knew firsthand about slavery. Wow. And when I say that, people look completely confused because slavery was like 400 years ago. No, slavery started 400 years ago, but it wasn't 400 years ago. It wasn't a long time ago. My great-grandma, who helped raise me until I was eight, until I went off to college, she died my freshman year in college, she knew firsthand stories about wow. slavery. And so that makes it not such a long time ago. And that usually impacts people because we haven't had time to get it right. 
You know what I mean? A lot of the struggles that we're having is because we are still in the infancy. I am the first generation of students who could go to integrated schools in Texas. Now, that means that my teachers may have grown up to hate folks who look like me at the worst. And at the best, they've never really been in close contact with someone like me. They certainly didn't have what we would call today cultural literacy or cultural competence. Those were not even words. They were just, here's some little black kids, teach them, bye. Whoa. And they probably weren't trained themselves. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. They, they grew up in the set. Those teachers had grown up in a deeply segregated South that believed that blacks should not have the same rights. Mm-hmm. And so imagine if you grow up kind of, I don't know if anybody, if any listeners are older, you know, Archie Bunker, if you grew up as an Archie Bunker and you became a teacher and now all of a sudden you have to teach these people who you call. And I was recently, I just talked about it on the podcast called, he called them uh, spooks and spicks. <gasps> Imagine if that's how you talked at home, but, and then at school you had to talk, you had to teach black kids and Hispanic kids and imagine what the experience was like for those kids being taught by someone who really didn't have, didn't esteem them, didn't value oh. them. So that, that's how I grew up. So that's, that's my story. And, and I try to use those things that I've learned to help educators understand how important it is to create a sense of belonging, to make sure yeah. that kids feel valued and validated. Well, you showed a picture of you in the school. Kind of explain that picture, because maybe we could put that picture up. I mean, it's like, you know, when I was a little girl, I had my, you know, you know how mamas and grandmamas have your school pictures up. Uh-huh. And my, my, our family and folks would come in and go, oh, my God, oh, I see you, the only little speck in there. And that was the term that we use in the black community for that lone black friend in the classroom of all white students. And so I think there was um, Betty was Hispanic. Betty was Mexican. Uh, the next year, I think Esther came and she was Spanish from Spain. But yeah, you see, I'm, I'm telling you who the people who were non-white on my camp in my classroom I'm telling you who they were. I still remember their names. That is amazing. That was first grade or what was that? Uh, first, a second, a se- first grade I had, there were twins, Shaman and Sherman were there as well. And so, uh, the, yeah, after second grade, third, fourth, fifth. That must have been tough. I can't even imagine. You Did know you- what? It's normal. That's the yeah. interesting thing. When I look back, yeah. when things sometimes things happen as an adult or I see things happen in the classroom as a teacher and I go, ouch. it's like a child who's who lives in an abusive home they don't know anything else they don't know that that's not normal and so I remember knowing that Miss Stillwell um didn't hear me when I told her that the little blonde-haired blue-eyed girl kept stealing my new pencils and she kept giving me the plain ones and I had the little fancy ones from my grandma and I knew that she didn't believe me and I remember feeling that she just didn't like me but you can't name that when you're six or seven. Oh, what do you say to your mom or your dad? You know, what do you say when you come home? Like, oh, I'm being accused. Oh. You didn't say anything, probably. I don't huh? think my te- I don't think my teacher likes me. Oh, that's so hard. I, oh, I'm so sorry, you. But you turned out so amazing. I don't know how you did it. Cultural dance, and that's what happens. You have this one school culture, and you maneuver that the way that you must. And mm-hmm. you compensate, you code switch. Code switching is when you, um, you know how 
the husbands talk one way when they're with their wives and then they go into the other room and they start talking about sports and uh, gals. And, you know, it's, that's called code switching. And children oh. raised in one culture that is non-dominant and go to a school where the culture is mostly dominant, uh-huh. then you, you code switch. You speak maybe Spanish at home and then you come to school and you speak academic English and you behave like the non... It's called the hidden curriculum. The things that you have to do to be successful, you have to look like mainstream, quote unquote, America, which is long, you know, slowly becoming no longer mainstream. But that's yeah. me. And it happens almost automatically because you just assimilate because you know that if you if your hair's too big or if your neck swings too much or if you dance a little bit too much or drop too much slang, then all of a sudden you're on the outside. And so, we just uh, and then when you get home, you make sure that you do the opposite. You oh my gosh, that's tough for kids. I and I know it's going on now. I know that kids are doing this. So, wow, you told me a little bit about your mom. Well, actually, you told everyone there. Yeah. I, I loved that you told the story of the music in your family. And oh my gosh, you know what? That's our. I am actually the fourth generation musician in a line of five. My son is also a musician, so it's really, really neat. And all of us have played for church, and that's kind. A neat legacy. So I grew up in the house with my mom, my grandma, and my great grandma. So my great grandma, when she moved to from Louisiana, she brought with her. She brought an actual Victrola. <laughs> really, that was a long time ago too. That was amazing. Yeah, you, you yeah. Google it for those of you if you're millennial. Google it. And then my <laughs> mom still had her '78 Shellac records. And so she had, mommy had, my great-grandma, mommy, she had records from like Mahalia Jackson and Thomas A. Dorsey, Claire Martin mm. Singers. Those were the, the beginnings of gospel when gospel wasn't even a word yet. But those were those, those were the kind of, that's the kind of music she had. My great-grand, my grandma, she was a jazz fan. So she had Ella and she had mm. Lena Horne and she had Duke Ellington. And I learned how to, that old black magic has me in its spell. I learned <laughs> all of that music and she taught me how to dance to that. And then, of course, my mom, when I was 12, she actually bequeathed to me her precious Motown 45 collection. Oh, gosh. So I got to learn all of the Smokey Robinson stuff, all of the um, the old girl groups. Um, well, I got two lovers and I ain't ashamed like that. So I got to learn all of that music. And I thought I just dis- I thought I discovered Fast Domino. <laughs> Who's not on Motown? Uh, um, yeah, so that's kind of how we co- we connected the generations. So that's the music that I grew up with. And again, most people still know who Duke Ellington is. You know, oh yeah. If you know gospel, you at least know uh, a Sally Martin or a Thomas A. Dorsey because he was he's now considered the father of gospel. And again, those things are not far away. But the person who had those records is a person who knew also firsthand stories about slavery. And my grandma, her stories were about a very segregated South and the lynchings that she heard of mm. and the violence perpetuated against the Black community and for trying to trying to maybe vote or trying to, quote unquote, be out of your place. Oh, gosh. And you hear the stories, but she she knew them because she probably knew the pe- you know, maybe these were neighbors. These were other people oh, yeah, who her knew. Co- her college roommate was killed. Really? 
Yeah. Oh, wow. And so they were, yeah, they were just stories that she told me. And they were the stories that I didn't know how much social significance they had. They were just, you know, they were just my mama's and my grandma's turf stories. But I've learned the social context and how, how socially significant those stories were um, as I've gained my own context through my own research. Because, of course, I didn't really know much about my history because there was no... They don't teach uh, it. No. They don't teach <laughs> it. No, I just... I, I'm a Texan. That means that for me, the South is heroic. The South will rise again. I was 16 and I thought a Confederate flag was something really neat. I wanted one for my room. And my mom looked at me and she said, sweetheart, look at that. What is that? And I said, but I was raised. It's like a serious gaslighting because I was raised that the South was heroic. And it never occurred to me that had the South won or if the South were to rise again, I would still be picking cotton. (laughs) Wow. So it's amazing how you, it's like, you know, you talk about the gaslighting. I mean, when you were young, that's all you saw, especially if you were, you know, isolated in a class without people that look like you and you never had a teacher that looked like you. Am, am I right? Absolutely. And yeah. even the, when I, when I got to, you know, sixth grade, things shifted a little bit and I had some, a, a few more people who looked like me in the classes, but again, we were still taught, you know, Texas history is very much mm-hmm. um, pro-Texas. If you look at the Texas constitution and I don't, I hate to use the word white supremacy because it's such a red flag for so many. Mm-hmm. But it's literally written into the Texas Constitution uh, in the 1800s. If you go back and look at it, it, it uses the term and it talks about the this state being for white people and not others. Wow. It, it just amazes me that we're at this time again in history because, I mean, we learned and we learned so much because I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. and when the civil rights movement and lots of things were happening. And I still, we weren't taught so many things, they, even within about indigenous people. I mean, it's like, it, it like it was a secret. They didn't want us to know, you know? You know that, that's the thing I always talk about. You know, it's mm-hmm. easy from where I sit to say, oh my God, they wrote about white supremacy. Texas was for white people. That's so horrible. But if you think about it, how is it to sit on the other side? You Mm -hmm. have this nice, perfect life. And suddenly you see black people marching on a bridge and then the police have to beat them back because they're somewhere they shouldn't be. From your perspective, you are seeing an interloper. What's wrong? We've been living like this all along. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Why Why are they making trouble? And so you have to have an understanding, especially if you really want change from people who might not see it, you have to understand that that's got to be a bit of a culture shock as well. And it doesn't matter if, yes, but Mm -hmm. it's 2021. It's 2021 if you have had an experience like mine. If Mm -hmm. you have not, if you have lived in a microcosm or in in a, a homogenous area in the country where you have not been touched by racism at all because everyone looks like you, it's just, well, why are we changing? What's been wrong? We've been fine up until now. What do we have to do? It's like the proverbial wife and husband. (laughs) <laughs> and you know, all of a sudden, you know, the kids go off and the wife wants to go back to school or, you know, honey, let's take a dance course. What do you mean? We never do anything. I always come home and read the paper. What do you mean I'm supposed to come and talk to you? Well, honey, the kids are gone now. What, what do you mean? We've been happy all this time. Why are you suddenly unhappy? 
it's that situation. Uh, yeah. You know, like, you know, you're sitting along being, being fine outside Washington and all of a sudden there are these marches. Wait, I can imagine your parents thinking, what's going on? Why? Well, no, I think I told you about my parents. Well, yeah, that's yeah. Some, <laughs> some people maybe. <laughs> some people maybe. We were pretty proactive. Yeah, 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 I told you about that. But, yeah. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. You know, it's amazing though, because I grew up and, and really everyone in my high school was white. There was one black person and that person was on the football team. <laughs> it was a big school too. And I'm thinking, what's going on? Because you know, that's not what the population is around there. So I've been doing a lot of you know work on the redlining, the covenants and finding out even when I moved here to California, some of the things that happened here too. So it's, it's all over. It's not just Texas. It's just that it's pretty out there in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> especially now headlines, gosh. yeah it's yeah it's really it's almost like there's beautiful people all over it's just we need the voices we need people you know I just said to my husband I said I get to talk to Hedrick <laughs> I just love her and and you did something so beautiful at during your keynote, you started it with what, okay, cello, who is so cool. He was playing the cello. He was just so beautiful. And then all of a sudden he didn't get off the stage. And I wonder, I wonder if he knows he's supposed to leave. And then he started and you sang. You Lift every voice and mm-hmm. sing till earth and heaven ring. Oh. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Oh. That was you know, the Negro National Anthem that at, at every gathering we used to sing that when I was a little girl. And the audience, there were over 2,000 teachers in the audience, and they all stood up. It was like, I started crying. I'm taking pictures. You know, I told you I was going to take videos and pictures, and I'm sitting there crying. I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't know she was going to. You didn't tell me you were going to do that. So I was like. But you know, Barbara, so did I. I did, I did not expect it because it connects me to my early childhood. And yeah. the younger generation often doesn't even know the song anymore. Maybe you hear it if you still go to church in, uh, in February for Black History Month. But a lot of times we don't, we, we don't gather in. Well, because there's integration, we no longer yeah. often gather in Black public spaces. You know, perhaps, uh, I'm not a member of a Black sorority or, or HBCU group, perhaps in those spaces more. But if you work, if you live and work in an integrated place, you don't hear it much. And so to mm-hmm. see so many people across that huge room just stand and, and, and salute that and remember. And then they start, I didn't finish the song at the end. They finished it. Oh my! They all were singing with you. I just sat there and going... I mean, I was so happy that you came. I had no idea that you were going to do that. And you told the story of your family and and your beautiful family. I mean, the, you put up pictures and you told how, how all everyone singing and, and how you, you have a beautiful voice. Everyone goes, wow, did you, well, you're a singer. 
I don't know if people really know. Retired. <laughs> but you do have, you have some albums out there and on YouTube. I mean, I've listened to them. It's so fun that, because you don't want to hear me sing. Oh, oh scare people. No, 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 no. My, Your baby sings. You don't sing. Oh, no. My son got all the talent. He's he's a he plays all you know all the instruments and he can sing beautifully. It's just wonderful. This lady, you don't want to hear it. It sounds like a cat screeching. <laughs> but I'm glad you do, you you do have. Can we share some you know like the album and? Oh, you know what? It's on Spotify. So if yeah. you look up Hedrick Nichols and Time Now, you can still hear it. As a matter of yeah. fact, one of my favorite songs on is Time Now to Tell My Story. And it's really neat. I wrote it coming out of a divorce, a very, very interesting and long and drawn out sort of one. And that was my kind of a healing song. It was my, I wrote the whole CD out of that. So it's kind of gives you some interesting context. But so now it feels like that time again with the books coming out and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Time now to tell my story. So you can hear it. And I had it on as my, um, as my uh, wake up song on my alarm. Really? Oh, I'm going to go get that. That is so cool. I was thinking, you know, what, what I'm going to call your episode. I think I'm going to call it Time Now to Tell My Story. Ooh, I like that. Yes. Yeah, because that actually, it, it is true. You have an amazing life. You lived in Switzerland. Yeah, that's why I recorded <laughs> the album. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that must have been so different than your when you grew up in Texas and then you go to Switzerland of all. That's amazing. It was a really neat experience. The, the thing that remains with me, uh, first of all, I have, fam- I call them family, period. I have family over there that I still absolutely love. We keep in contact every day over mm. WhatsApp. Um, uh, so I have nieces and nephews there. My, my son grew up with those kids. That Those are his cousins for real. So there's that. But the thing that stays with me the most besides family is um, it was the first place that I ever lived where I was an American. I was not a hyphen American. I was not a fill in the blank American, a black American. It wasn't a, what are you? It's like, oh, she's the American. And wow. that level of acceptance, you know, we, you probably hear the stories about James Baldwin or my mm-hmm. who moved to Europe to, to flee racism. And it was still very, very much like that. You know, just having, mm-hmm. a, it was kind of being in a post-racial space for a little while. It was neat. Wow. Because I I have all of James Baldwin's and watch the videos and I I just is he's so brilliant mm-hmm. you know what I mean and I just think that it's too bad that you have to go out of the country to have that type of experience. I mean, when someone has to label you something, that's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other well, than American, I mean, American because we're. Yeah. All- and the truth of the matter is none of us are American unless you were really, really, I mean, we go back to the indigenous tribes. That's right. They, Cree and the Choctaw, they're American, the Powhatan, they're the American. That's right. That's right. And they were treated so bad and still in some, and so, I mean, I want to fight for whoever I can, but it's like, for me, it's always the stories. So while we were in Kentucky, we didn't just go... <laughs> You're going to tell them the after conference secrets now, are you? Oh, no, but I'm just saying it was, well, the fun, the fun thing is that just sitting down talking like we did that first night and yeah, just opening up and being able to talk like we're talking right now. It was so much fun. And I think 
We need to do more of that. I think everybody does where you can just open up and just share your story. And um, I just, I, I'm, it was really special for me to have that. You know what the most special thing was, Barbara? It was like it wasn't the first time because even the, we've sat across a screen so many times, but we sat in our gardens or we sat yeah. in the living room. And yeah. We had so many chats and it didn't feel like, oh, wow, I'm seeing you for the first time. It felt good to hug you, but it felt <laughs> like I haven't seen you for a long time than it did. Oh, wow, this is the first time I've actually seen you live. And that was that was the most special thing. You know what I mean? That oh, me too. Just that relationship that, that could be built even through a pandemic. That was, that's beautiful. Well, the fun thing was how you moved my room. <laughs> I didn't even know you were going to do that. She said, no, you're going to be on, on the same floor with me, right across from me. What are you doing? You're not going to be on a different floor. I mean, I love how you, you know, the, the, the fun thing about you is you make people feel alive and special and, it, that was really, I told my son, because Andrew was with us. <laughs> that was a wonderful, special part about the trip. That, that was really wonderful. We were like, all of us were like little kids going around Louisville and just having fun. But we also learned a lot. We met a wonderful group of people wow. and you were so appreciated. It was just what you needed. And what you did was just perfect. Now, let's just go, because I you know how we just love each other <laughs> but i was i the the thing that was for me that was so wonderful was our first reflection which do you know it was june 2020 that's how long ago that was really yeah that's how long ago and when we did it it was right when the p- pandemic really got just started getting bad and we had to close everything and we were talking and you and i <laughs> got on on um Zoom, and we were wearing the same outfit. <laughs> you know what? I, I actually, I had that sweater on today. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I. But I was like, I never wear that sweater. That was the weirdest thing. It was a red sweater with a black top, and you had the same thing. And it was almost like, who are you? It's like, but even now, look at our colors. I know. We just so color coordinated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the best thing. The best thing is what came out of that reflection was the post we put together. And that I it really inspired me to want to learn more. So you and I worked and we pulled that information about its scenarios and what you can do and don't do this. Try this kind of ideas. And you really opened my eyes. You know, the wonderful thing, I, I use that probably about every three to four months, I, I find a spot for it again, because it, like you said, the scenarios are, you know, everybody's not at the same place and yeah. that's okay. We need to all just stand down and get okay with that. First of all, please let me say that. So <laughs> if you have, if you grew up in the whitest place in the, in white America, and you have mm-hmm. never had any experience with anyone who does not look like you, then you have a, another kind of a learning curve and where you end up might be different than someone who has been, who grew up in a large urban center with a very diverse population and diverse teachers who wants to do some more equity work the classroom and what the the work that we did to just really put all of the different well what if you're here start here well what if this is more your experience well try this and to just that document gave everybody a spot to feel like I'm okay wherever I am Mm -hmm. on my journey I'm okay and that 
what an honor to work with you on it. It really helped me understand some things. And I, I, and then, and then when you started small bite, I, unfortunately it's on a time I can't always drink. So I'm sorry, <laughs> but I love it. I love it. It's every Friday. It was at eight o'clock your time, five, my time. Yeah, seven, yeah. My time, so seven, seven, seven and five, but it's Friday. Oh my, I hope everybody gets to go there when you do these small bites. It's they're like five minutes of just focused around one, you know, one part or one idea. And, um, and then you write a post with it and the post is amazing. I, I, every time I look at the post, I go, when do you have time for all this? You must not sleep. You must. Oh, wait, it's Thursday. Oh God, I have to finish it for this week. <laughs> like, oh, every Thursday, oh, oh wow, I didn't finish it. I usually start it right after the, after Friday. I know, and then I go and start it. Yeah, and I never get back to it because the week just seems to fly by, and then Thursday hits, and it's like, oh, it's us, right? It's only Wednesday, so yeah, I'm there. You got time. You got time. You don't. You don't have to sleep. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just what is so neat is. Is they've you have so many now, and you have the podcast, and you're all over the place. You're doing so many wonderful things. So the books, the one I have is what is anti-racism, and there's how many of these? Okay, so there are two that are out. What is anti-racism? What is the Black Lives Matter movement? Those uh-huh. are two that are out. Okay, there's two more coming out in February of twenty-two, oh. and they are three from a Black Excellence series. God, let me get the kind of titles right. One is on Blacks and STEM. One is on the Harlem Renaissance, and the other is on Black Wall Streets. And notice Ooh. I said streets, because a lot of times we knew about the Tulsa Bernie because it was 50 years, mm-hmm. but we don't realize that before integration, there were lots of pockets of Black wealth around the country. And so this book shows you the Wall Street in Atlanta, the Wall Street in D.C., the Black Wall Street in Chicago, as well as in Tulsa. Oh, I can't wait to read that. Yeah. You know, just le- learning all about Tulsa was so awful. Oh. And it's, you know, it's sad because you often find, and that's what I find learning about Black history. You see the Tulsa burning, uh-huh. because it's so horrific, you can't look away and you read about that. But you really have to dig to find information about the community that was thriving before all that happened. And to find artifacts, well, of course, there was the burning, so there, there were things that just did not survive. But yeah. to find people whose stories uh, you can listen to or hear, and their first-person stories still on the internet. Oh, so you found those? Wow. You see, that's the thing. Uh, there were so many people were killed and and almost everything was destroyed. It was terrible. I mean, that's what they wanted. They just want to get rid of all of that. We don't want to. But I'm so glad that people are still telling the stories because we need those. So you have that. Then you have a new book, Finding Your Blind Spots. I am, Barbara. I am so excited about that one. You know, one of our first early conversations was about writing and it's about your book, Defining Your Why, and, you know, uh, me starting to finally slowly pull that story together for, you know, how I really want to put it together for educators, because it's not, a st- you know, stories are great, but this one is mm-hmm. really about strategy. Stories, but strategies. We're going to get a picture of it, because I saw it. It's from Solution Tree, right? Yes. Yeah, I saw it. Defining Principles, 
to help combat implicit bias. But we went through so many titles that I can mm-hmm. never remember the back to the tagline. Oh. So I, I mean, but it's, it's got eight, eight principles about how to um, mitigate that, to basically find your blind spots so that you can mitigate mm-hmm. implicit bias. And the mm. first chapter, I'm actually going to preview this coming Friday on Small Bikes. So in a couple mm-hmm. of days. And it's I, about creating, oh, Eileen's got to, oh, she'll be asleep. It's about a sense of a belonging. Finding oh, sense cool. Of- then I'll, we'll have to just make sure she gets it. <laughs> Eileen Winokur is another soul sister of mine too. You need to, <laughs> sorry, I don't want to take it away, but <laughs> there's some, there's some people that come in your life and you go, wow, how lucky am I? This is just wonderful. Well, I know about this. I took some of your, you had, um, a few, I don't know if they were uh, mini courses on how to, uh, about implicit bias. So I took the, you know, the, the questionnaire, I did the course with you or you remember? I did you the, did, you got yeah. the kid. That was the first launch actually. Yes. So, well, it's amazing not realizing that you might be biased. It's really amazing because we all are in some way. We we can't help it. It's just being aware of it. And you you do it so well. You made it so it just opened the door to look at some of the strategies that you can make yourself aware and some things you can do about it. I didn't even know it was. And I thought, you know, I really thought I was really an open person. <laughs> Well, we all are. Just, I mean, if you think about it, cognitively speaking, we pull in a gazillion bits of information every day. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, look yeah. at you. I don't have to think what are those four, what are the, what is that thing on your face? Or, you know, what are those things in your ears? Or what is the thing, the round thing with the Roman numerals? I don't have to ask myself those questions. Mm-hmm. My, my brain is automatically, okay, these are glasses. Those are earphones. That's a podcast microphone. That's a clock and that's all biases it it allows us to be able to know oh that's Uh, a four-legged creature it's a dog oh that's a four-legged creature it's a fox Hmm. oh that's a four-legged creature it's a bear hey let's get the heck out of here that's what bias is bias is just a way it's the end result of us being able to sort information so that we don't have to make infinite number of an infinite number of cognitive decisions in a day and that because we're automatically sorting things sometimes it goes a little it goes a little awol and we Mm. end up sorting things into categories that may not or may disenfranchise someone else and that's how it comes. So if we realize that the same good thing that lets me know the difference between a dog and a bear is something that I need to be aware of because it might make me think, ooh, big black man danger. Well, that's kind of scary because that's how some people feel. And that's that's my concern if it's a police too, you know. You know. That's exactly. But that's how it happens. You know, yeah. what I mean? and when you see the news and if you see a lot of black people having, you know, black people as criminals or you see black movies and they're always gangster movies. That's why it's so important. The kind of media images we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always talk about when Chris was little, Barack Obama became president and he said, mama, 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 Obama is the president. Obama is the president. He looks like me. Um. And whether or not you espouse his politics, you have to also understand that for a million little black girls and black boys around the country, around the world, they mm-hmm. saw themselves suddenly not as a rapper or a gangbanger, boys in the hood, or, you know, uh, even uh, something else. But they saw themselves in the seat of power. 
And that was huge. When we say, baby, you can grow up to be anything, it really made it feel like it's true. I just love when we can have some, you know, connect and show that we're human. Yeah, it's like when Naomi Campbell became a supermodel. That was huge for me because as uh, I was up, you know, none of the models looked like, well, that's not true. There was Beverly Johnson and there was Iman. Yeah, there were several. Yeah, they were, that, no, they were like, no, literally, those, that was it. There were Beverly Johnson. Oh, yeah, three. <laughs> and yeah. then Naomi Campbell hit that that really upper, upper, and uh, she was no longer just the black model. She was walking the catwalks with those other famed people, and you saw her in the media a lot. Yeah. And that was huge because it was like, oh, we can do that too. And now, of course, kids growing up these days, you see models of all kinds of colors and even shapes and sizes. Yeah, I like that because, I mean, I, I know young women, young girls who have anorexic because they think, well, I have to be skinny. And now they're showing that they even have Barbie dolls now with all different sizes and all different, you know, hair, all different colors. And I never thought, because do you know that, I'm Barbara, and that uh, that was a very popular name until the 50s when uh, parents didn't want Barbie dolls. They stopped. If you notice, there weren't that many Barbaras after like the 60s and so. And then they said, we got to do something about it. So now they're bringing it back. So they look like real people. I love it. Actually, it was one of my favorite aisles to visit before Christmas because there's so many options of Barbies now. There's a rocker Barbie, yeah. and there's Barbies in wheelchairs. There's a Barbie with a prosthesis. So we're yeah. not talking just black Barbies, white Barbies. We're talking about all diversity. Kinds. Yes. You know, we could talk forever. You know that. We actually did one night. It was like crazy. <laughs> I mean, at one point we went out to eat and I don't think we were supposed to, we were supposed to be somewhere. <laughs> we just kept talking. <laughs> oh, I had so much fun. But you, I love that we get to share your books and we're going to create a post that goes with it so people can actually click on something and get to your books, get to your small bites, get to all of the uh, resources that you have and so I want to know, I, other than your books and whatever, but we talk, I know what your why is, your why, well, actually say it, you kind of defined it to me, so. When I really define my why, it's that I want boys who look like my baby, my son, to have a different experience in schools than I had. And unfortunately, mm. he's 17, he's told me similar stories, the kind of same kind mm. of stories that I've experienced. He's still experiencing that. That means that teachers need to be more educated on how to make the, if he's the only black kid in the room, when they talk about something for black history, not that everybody looks like him. The teacher says, Chris, what do you think? <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, you told me that happened. <laughs> Little things like that. So we want to make that kind of thing we want to make it so that kids who don't, who might not be a part of the dominant culture or who maybe just look different from the teacher. So yeah. that those people also feel seen, mm -hmm. validated, and so that they see themselves reflected in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. And um, my other why is that I would like my son to be safe on the streets because also in the community, yeah. he's biased, so he's not seen as a threat because he's a Black man. That is big. That is big. And by the way, Chris is just, Beautiful, by the way. <laughs> I, and he plays the most wonderful music. And the music on Small Bites is his music. 
Absolutely. Yes. He, he did um, Melanie McAllister's podcast music as well. <gasps> I might hire him. <laughs> yeah. He's just wonderful. And I'm lucky I got to meet him in virtually. But he's, you know, it just makes you, yes, what we can do for our children, what we hope for our children. But this is big because you lived it and you just want to see something better for him. And I understand. Yeah. Yeah. He's just we're real special. So I just want to tell you that I couldn't wait for this. And it's everything I thought it was going to be. No, also, you know, when I told my son, I was like, Yeah, I'm fine. I just talked to Barbara. Barbara? So because he remembers yeah. you, you know? Yeah. He lights up. Well, that's how Andrew was. We're gonna show the picture of you and I and Andrew. I think we were in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> hotel lounge okay but all I know is we we were just giggling and having so much fun and the best thing is is that we have this relationship but I want everyone to know how special you are and because you you already are spreading your wings and writing and sharing so much that I don't have to do it but I still want people that are in my audience to know you However, I, you know, from the, from the day, from day one, you've always said, Hey, I just love what you do. If I can ever help and support and just let me know. And I mean, our friendship has grown out of a, a mutual desire to see the world be better and, and, yeah. and, and then just a mutual love for one another. So I just appreciate your friendship and thank you for this platform as well. Thank you for introducing me to your audience. Well, this is like, I tell everyone it's my virtual porch and it really did sound like it <laughs> that we were just together again. So thank you so much. And you have a wonderful rest of your day. I love you. You too. <laughs> Bye, dear. Bye-bye. This is Barbara Bray. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Hedrick Nichols. Make sure you check out the blog post that goes with this podcast because it includes Hedrick's story along with links, pictures, videos, and so much more. Please subscribe to my Rethinking Learning Podcast. It would be awesome if you wrote a review You can also subscribe to my website at barbabray.net to receive updates, more amazing podcasts, and a link to resources and a new lower price for my book, Define Your Why. Thanks again for listening. Keep sharing your story and please stay safe and be well.